Uh, if you could look this up with me, it's on page one. Ah, I'm not sure, 1503 in yours? It's different in this one. It's John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15. And we're starting at verse nine. Is it 1503? No, it's 1023. 1023. Thank you. <laughs> That's uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 9. Some of the most powerful words in the Gospel. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because servants don't know their master's business, but instead I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. But this is my command, love each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'd love you to have uh, page 1023 open in front of you. We're going to look at, uh, just complete our studies, our living and feeding of Jesus' teaching about the vine. Um, A short word of prayer, just to ask God to make this image live to us and in us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is uh, bread and not a stone. Thank you that it feeds us. And we ask, Lord, please now, by your spirit, uh, break off bits and help us to digest that we might grow more and more into the likeness of your son, that we might bear fruit, showing ourselves to be your disciples. So teach us now. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been uh, just carrying out these little um, studies in in this particular passage, this metaphor that Jesus employs of of the vine and the branches. We've looked at how uh, genuine Christians are those who are intimately connected to the vine and have the life of the vine flowing through them as, as branches, as it were. We see that Jesus is the true vine. So there may be counterfeit offers of life and sap and fruitfulness, but Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Not easy to stand on that declaration in this day and age, actually just in this part of the world, really. Uh, 
But there is Jesus' claim, which as we take it and trust it by faith, we experience it to be true in our lives, in our hearts and our minds. And we've looked last week at uh, actually the, the work of the gardener. He prunes a vine in order to make it even more fruitful. And I want to ask this morning, why a vine? Why does Jesus stand here and to his disciples, why does he say, I am the true vine? Why is he employing that particular image or metaphor? And uh, those of you who are schooled in your Bibles, I'm sure you'll come straight back at me. Well, the vine was the image of Israel, God's chosen people, of which, if you like, Jesus is the culmination. Uh, as he comes and says, I'm the true vine. But the vine has always been associated with Israel, with God's people. Uh, the prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the psalmist talks of God choosing a vine. I, I chose a vine. The psalmist employs the words of the Lord. I, I chose a vine. I, I cleared the ground. I planted it. I tended it. It grew. So my question, why why did God choose a vine? I mean, after all, there are far more impressive things that grow and give signs of life. A cedar tree, tall and strong and rooted, with these great branches. It, it, it stand, they stand out for miles. The, the wood, cedar wood, is, is a quality wood. Why not a, a cedar? Why isn't Israel a cedar? Why doesn't Jesus come and say, I am the true cedar? Or if you want the sort of idea of fruitfulness, why not a fig tree? Figs um, prevalent in the Middle East. Big, succulent, juicy figs. Why not a fig? Why a vine? And I wonder, it's just a theory, it's just amusing, and you'll see where I've come from with this. So uh, this is not authoritative, I just put it out there. Take it and test it, as they say. Chew over it. But I wonder whether God chooses a vine to tell us about him. I'll come back to that. I'll park that thought there and come back to it. I want to talk about friendship, and I'll lead up to that question to finish with. I no longer call you servants, Jesus says. Instead, I call you friends. Because a servant doesn't know his master's business. There's a distance. But everything that I've learned from the Father, I make known to you. Wow. I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Friendship, this is a big, this is a deep thing. It's not just an occasional, let's pop out the Starbucks and have a little, it is woven into creation. Friendship lies at the very heart of Trinity. In In the creation accounts in Genesis, how the world began in theological terms, God in three persons, pre-exists. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. John himself attests, uh, he, uh, speaking of Jesus, he was before all things. Through him, all things came into being. The Spirit hovering over the waters at the, at the very start of creation. God, three persons in one, relationship, Friendship, and it's out of that. It's out of that sort of that spin, if you like, that dance of the Trinity, that creation pours forth, night and day and land and sea. It, it comes out of a heart of 
of love, of friendship, the culmination of creation. Let us make man in our image. There must be more than one. Now, here's, here's something to consider. Adam, before the fall, before they chose the path of disobedience and all that follows from that, before the fall, in the perfection of Eden, is lonely. It is not good for man to be alone. Before the fall, all other social disintegration, we can track back to sin, to our own uh, brokenness, to our own incompletion. But Adam, before the fall, in the perfection of paradise, Adam is lonely. And the reason why Adam is lonely is because of his perfection. In the image of God, whose, whose very image is relational. The reason why Adam was lonely was because Adam wasn't a tree or a rock or something inanimate and lifeless. He had the very life of God in him. It was not good for him to be alone. First thing. Second thing, flowing as a consequence of that with regard to friendship, is that we need divine friendship. We need friendship with God. Every single one of us in this room this morning will know what it is to have been let down in our pursuit of friendship, of intimacy, of acceptance, of love, of forgiveness, as we've sought it in one another. There isn't a person on the planet who hasn't been let down by a, if I can put it like this, a horizontal relationship, a relationship with a fellow human being. That's because we have this divine seed, this divine yearning for ultimate friendship, the like of which none of us will ever be able to supply to another. We need divine friendship, friendship with God. Do you see it there? Sown into creation, the fact of friendship and our need for friendship that goes beyond our own friendships. This, this isn't, in a sense, in, by the way, to diminish our relationships. We, in a sense, we practice with one another what we ultimately seek with the Lord. We can have wonderful friendships, wonderful relationships here on earth, but they will only ever be a kind of faint echo, a distant shadow of the friendship, the relationship that we are called to have, the connection like a branch in the vine with the living God himself through Jesus Christ, empowered by his spirit. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his father's business, there's a, his master's business. There's, a, there's just a distance, there's an ignorance, there's a gap. Instead, I call you friends. Friends draw in, friends invite, friends include. Friends reveal something of themselves, commensurate with the state of the relationship, so that two entities become one. Friendship is covenantal. Friendship makes something new out of the two involved in friendship. And Jesus invites us in, he draws us in. John, uh, in 
his introductory comments in the prologue, he says, um, no one's seen God. But God, the one and only, has, has made him known. And he's referring to Jesus, who's come down and shown us what God is like. And he has this phrase, who is at, God the one and only, who is at the Father's side. It's slightly weak and anemic sort of English translation. It literally means whose head was in his chest. This image of, of, a, of a sort of a, a son or a child lying in the chest of the father, such that one imagines that, that the heartbeat of the father was kind of pounding in the ear of the son. Jesus, who was right in the bosom of the father, right in the chest, has made him known. All that I've learned from the father, as I've listened to the heart of the father, his desire for how life should be, all of that I've made known to you as a friend, would lay out himself or herself for another and invite the other in. No longer servants, but friends. And here's the deal, which we experience from time to time, maybe in the loneliness of our room at night, perhaps as we travel in our business, on a plane or in the car, when from time to time there's just a quiet or a stillness and all the rushing and the striving ceases, those existential moments when we realize our own loneliness, born not actually of perfection but out of sin, out of our inability to make good relationships. We get out of kilter with our husbands and wives, our boyfriends and girlfriends, our colleagues, our neighbors. And we have just a tiny little chilling foretaste of what life is like without Christ. You see, because of the curse of the fall, we are destined to die. Physically, our bodies will just stop. But more than that, spiritually dead, cut off from God, ultimate isolation, ultimate loneliness. We have this sort of image, it's a biblical image, of the kind of fires of hell. Actually, hell, I think, is chilling as much as it's uh, horrendous heat and fire. It is that awful, lonely, icy ache that I am just, I'm, I'm cut off from everything and everyone I am completely isolated. I am completely alone. I am nothing. What does Jesus say? We've seen it. Remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You are nothing. I am nothing out of divine relationship. And what does Jesus say? Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. He's thinking of what's going to happen in just a few hours' time as he goes to trial, as he goes to Calvary, as he goes to take the curse of our death so that we should not be lonely, but forever be known as his friend and in anticipation of what he's going to do by taking away the curse of sin, by dying in our place, he says here, <laughs> you didn't choose me. I chose you. 
I don't call you servants. I call you my friends. Because greater love hath no one than this. There's no higher sign of friendship than to lay down my life for you. We are friends with God in Jesus Christ. If we're connected to the vine, if we've received his life-giving sap in us, we are friends with God. But we're friends with God not because we are perfect, but because he is perfect. He goes ahead. He takes the initiative. He lays down his life. He bids us enter in. We can countenance the possibility of friendship with God because of what he's done. And we struggle. We struggle. We talk about loving God. Lots of Christians everywhere, even people who don't regularly come to church, they can talk about a sort of love for God. And by love for God, they mean kind of duty. We mean duty. I ought to to do that. I know I ought to do this. Because, you know, I kind of love God in the same way that I sort of love cleaning my teeth. Which I do it regularly because if I don't, something bad might happen. My teeth fall out. It's that kind of love. It's love through gritted teeth. It's love because I sort of ought to. It's love with its hands in its pockets, dragging its feet. Friendship, that's threatening. I can love God. A servant can kind of love the master. It's sort of, you know, he gives me a good deal. Three meals a day, I get accommodation, chores, he treats me kindly. I kind of love the master in a kind of, well, what else is there kind of a way. But like, friendship. We like the distance of a servant. Servant language makes us sound humble. Well, you know, I'm, not, I'm just a servant. I'm just a servant. Jesus says, I don't, call, I don't call you servant. I don't know why you're calling yourself a servant. You know the story Jesus told of the prodigal son? And he goes away and the son comes to his sense. He comes back and he says to the father, I'm not fit to be your son. Make me one of your servants. And the father won't hear of it. He does everything he can to show sonship, belonging, love. We, we, like, to, we like to do like, the, no, just make me, I'll be a servant, you're humble. Because we like the distance. because we're frightened of friendship with God. Imagine that you're going on a journey in a car. You're going to a place you've never been to before. You don't know where it is. Which would you rather? That someone comes up with a, they've got a map, and they say, look, um, I've been there before, and I know how to get there. You're here, and you go there, turn right, turn left, and you'll get there. Here's the map, why don't you have the map? And we got the instructions and we got the map and we say, great. That. Or the person says, oh, I've been there before. I know how to get there. I'll get in the car. I'll come with you. Now, in our heads, don't we, don't we, wouldn't that be better? To have the person constantly with us. They, they'll, they'll guide that, oh, I know a little shortcut here. Oh, there's roadworks. I tell you what, let's go. I mean, wouldn't it be so much better to have the person who knows exactly how to get there with you all the way on the journey? But we, we quite like that. No, no, just, just, give me the, just give me the instructions and leave me alone. Just tell me a few things, ethical codes, moral sort of, uh, you know, and that'll do. 
And as we've been meditating on the vine, I've been trying to invite us to consider, you know, what is that? As we, as we kind of chew over and engage with this idea of relating with God and knowing God personally. I'll tell you what it is with me, because I, I recognize this fear frequently. This sort of, I'd rather have the instructions. I want the distance. I'd rather be a servant. I'm, I'm more comfortable with love than like, with Lord than friend. Not that I don't love God, not that he isn't a Lord, but that Jesus is inviting me to see that there's more. What is it? I'll tell you what it is. Let's take the car analogy. Supposing I don't feel like conversation, my fear is he'll talk at me all the time. Jesus is there going, oh, no, 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 no. I think, oh, be quiet. I just want a bit of space. But as I think about that, what am I saying? Am I saying that Jesus won't be sensitive to my needs? That he doesn't understand that at that time he'd just like a bit of quiet. Let's travel in silence. If Jesus is really my friend such that he'll lay down his life for me, don't I think that he will know that? Let's turn it around. What activity would you most like to do with the one you most love and like? Your greatest friend here on earth. Imagine, who is that? And what would you most like to spend an afternoon or a day doing, being with them. What, what would just, as you think about it now, you think, oh, that'd be great. How often do you imagine that kind of scenario with Jesus? Rather than sort of this guy in a white nightie and sort of blonde hair, blue eyes, which I've never seen a Jew looking like that. But um, there he, and he'll somehow, he'll make kind of demands that will erode what you'd like to do as a I often think of people say, oh, the thing about it, I don't really want to, you know, get too involved because I'm frightened that God will make me a missionary and he'll send me out to somewhere I don't want to go. Like, what kind of God are you thinking of? The God of delights. going, oh, where shall we send them where they hate being? I mean, it might be something we hadn't thought of or something that originally we had sort of fears, but this is a God who changes hearts. This is a God who comes alongside listens, hears, sees where we're at, and meets us where we're at in order to take us on. This is the God who grafts a branch into the vine so that the sap of the vine flows through the branch so that gradually fruit emerges, fruit that lasts. Back to my original question. Why did God choose a vine? Because um, I did a little bit of research on a vine, and um, of all the sort of things that grow, a vine is the most time-consuming. It grows quickly, but in a sort of haphazard and uh, very chaotic state. So as a vine dresser, as a gardener, you've constantly got to be at it. You're constantly having to prune it and train it. You've got to put in canes and trellises and so on. You've got to watch it all the time because it just grows all over the place. It, it needs constant time, constant attention, constant detailed, skillful care. Oh, what a pain. What a complete pain. Why would you want to be a vine dresser to, to a vine. And then I had one of those wake up moments, thanks to an old neighbor of ours called Rick. When we lived in Hammersmith, Rick lived next door. And Rick 
bought a Land Rover, not a brand new, top of the range, all singing, all dancing Land Rover. He bought a second-hand, ropey, rusty, leaky, noisy, smelly Land Rover. And I, I looked at Rick. Every time I looked out the window, I could see Rick under, or I could only see half of Rick, his bottom half. The rest of it was underneath. And he'd emerge all oily and mucky, but beaming. Or he'd be fixing things, or checking things, or polishing, or cleaning, or... He just spent forever on the Land Rover. What a pain. I mean, just that, that, that Land Rover taking, taking all your time and energy resources. And then it occurred to me, Rick could have bought a new Land Rover. Or he could have bought another car. He chose to buy that one. He even gave it a name. He called it Barry. <laughs> he chose Barry because he wanted to spend time with a Land Rover. He loves Land Rovers. He likes tinkering and messing around and getting mucky. He couldn't wait. When he was at work, he'd daydream about Barry. He, he was thinking about what Barry needed next. As he walked past, um, you know, petrol head shops, he'd look at all the gadgets and gizmos and think, oh, I could get one for, Garrett, for Barry. Not, not Gary. Gary's... We don't talk about Gary. Barry. And as I did the reading and the studying on the vine, and as I thought about Rick and Barry, oh, I realized. Why did God choose a vine? Not, he's not trying to tell us something about the vine. He's trying to tell us something about him. He loves tending the vine. He brought a plant that just demands time and attention and energy because that's what he wants to do. He loves the vine he likes the vine. That's why he deliberately wants to spend time with the vine. Looking for fruit. How can we make it even more fruitful? What can I do? How can I improve this? How can this be the most healthy vine that there is? I am the true vine, Jesus says. Remain in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. God loves you. God likes you. God deliberately chose you in Jesus because he wants to spend even more time with you. Because he likes that. He loves that. It's all that his heart knows. It was sown in right at creation and it's been there all the way through. And in Jesus, he's grafted us into the vine so that he can spend more and more time with you and with me because he likes us. That's what he loves doing. And as we allow that to nibble away at our fear of God, so that we can begin to learn to like God. We'll discover fresh energy, new inspiration to love others as he has loved us. This is my command, Jesus says. And his command will become our delight in our places of work, in our homes, in our families. As we love others, as we like others, just as Jesus 
loves and likes us. Amen. Let's just have a moment. You might like to think of Rick and Barry or an equivalent. And maybe that's your entree in with the Spirit. A renewing of your heart and mind. A fresh appreciation of the God who loves us and likes us. Just in the quietness of our hearts now to journey with him. Just to go through the week that lies ahead. The things in your life that you enjoy doing that make you come alive. And maybe for the first time to acknowledge that Jesus loves you liking that. He loves you living. That when you're delighted and satisfied, he's delighted and satisfied in your delight and satisfaction. And maybe resolve that as you recognize his delight and satisfaction in you, his liking of you, his friendship, that you'll seek inspired by him to put in place appropriate responses, a growing desire and determination to love and like him back. And a short prayer to finish. Father, we stand with the prophets who foretold that you would remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. And so we ask each and every one of us today, Lord, the stony bits of our hearts, that you would remove them by your spirit, that you would give us hearts of flesh that recognize you and your great love, your friendship for us in Christ. Lord, that you would empower us right now by your spirit to respond to you, to be released into appreciating who we are in you, to receiving your affirmation as our Father. We are your children. And to live in the light of that great truth. Help us, Lord, now. Equip us. Release us. For Jesus' sake. Amen.